0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's
2: quince.com slash upgrade. The Torah in the
0: photo on the front page of The New York Times looked familiar to Ezra Finkelstein. It was being held by President Harry Truman, who was in conversation with the man who had just given it to him, Dr. Haim Weizmann. Weizmann was the president of the newly formed state of Israel and had given Truman the Torah as a thank you for being the first world leader to officially recognize the new country. The gift had been a last minute idea. With nothing on hand, Weizmann asked the head of the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York, Louis Finkelstein, if he had anything suitable. Finkelstein unwilling to give away any of the seminary's artefacts, instead looked to his family's possessions and offered up the Torah he'd gifted to his son, Ezra, for his bar mitzvah. Ezra only found out when he read the paper the next day. 75 years on, the ties between the United States and Israel that started with Truman are being tested. I'm John Prudhoe, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how secure is the US-Israel relationship? This week, Israel marks its 75th anniversary. Since President Truman recognized Israel in 1948, America has been its closest foreign ally. But that relationship has seldom been easy. That's true now. Progressive Democrats are questioning the party's innate pro-Israel stance, and Benjamin Netanyahu's controversial judicial reforms have met with open disapproval from the White House. What might relations between America and Israel look like in another 75 years? With me this week to discuss one of America's closest relationships with a foreign ally and a relationship that's absolutely crucial to the state of Israel are James Bennett coming to us from Washington, D.C., and Charlotte Howard in New York. James, how are you doing and what's going on in the great nation's capital?
3: I'm doing well, John. It's a glorious day in the nation's capital, one of those stunning spring days that just makes you wonder why everybody here is so angry and aggrieved all the time, and they can't just mellow out a little bit and get along. I was just walking through Farragut Square across from the White House, which is festooned with American and Korean flags in honor of the state visit that's underway here.
0: That does sound good. I have very happy memories of DC at cherry blossom time. Charlotte, how are you doing? What's up in New York?
1: I'm doing well. We have Minton Mittenbedos, our editor-in-chief, and Ed Carr, our deputy editor, here for long interviews with Henry Kissinger, who turns 100 next month. But hearing James talk about the visit from... South Korea's president reminds me that Netanyahu has yet to receive an invitation to the White House. So you're welcome for this perfect segue.
0: Um, Thank you for that. I was actually going to take your perfect segue and take it somewhere else. James, Joe Biden is running for president, which is perhaps no great surprise. You wrote a column about this a while ago. We argued, you argued in the column that him running for president, again, was not a great idea. You kindly came and talked about that on, on the podcast. So how are you feeling now? It's all real. Um, worried, <laughs> I
3: guess, still terribly worried.
0: I I don't
3: think I'm the only American to judge by the polling that, that feels this way. And But it sure looks right now like we're going to get a repeat of what we saw in 2020 and a, a grudge match between these two candidates that um, most Americans don't want to see.
0: We did a podcast at the beginning of March about whether it was a good idea for Biden to run. At the time, we all, like most other people, most other analysts expected – that he would. So do go back and listen to that if you're curious about our views of his chances next year. Also, the great James Bennett was on The Intelligence, our daily podcast earlier this week. And so if you want to hear James's take, go back and find that in your podcast app. Well, James, we're delighted to have you here this week. We particularly wanted to have you on a podcast about the US-Israel relationship because you covered Israel from the New York Times. And this is a subject you've been thinking about for a while. And when we were doing a bit of podcast prep, we had a call. And Charlotte and I just fell silent and basically listened to what you had to say. So that's basically what we plan to do in this episode, if that's okay with you. Um, I will do my best. Thank you for having me on. Before we get to James's thoughts, though, I thought a good place to start would be with Josie Dillap, who's The Economist's Middle East editor. I asked her about how Israeli politics have changed since Joe Biden first ran for president 32 years ago.
4: When you're thinking about Israel at 75, one of the things that it is easy to do is to sort of take its existence for granted. And for years, we have talked... So much about Israel's place in the Middle East, about the Israel-Palestine peace process, about its relationship with America, about its relationship with Arab countries, that you sort of forget that it was founded, you know, at an extraordinary moment in the aftermath of the Holocaust, after sort of years of this nascent Zionist movement arguing for the, for the establishment of a state of Israel – where they had different ideas about what that was. Was it just a Jewish homeland that could be anywhere? Was it inextricably linked to this particular piece of land? And so I think that, you know, whatever you think about Israel, whatever you think about the rights and wrongs of the way it was established, the way it has evolved, I think that one thing to remember at this point is that its existence and its survival were never guaranteed. So the fact that it's reached 75 is in and of itself sort of quite extraordinary.
0: For me, it's been interesting this past week going back and reading a little bit more about Israel's early history and realizing or remembering, as you say, quite how fragile the country was and how contingent its survival seemed to be at various points. And, and yet, over the course of seven decades, it built these incredible institutions and this thriving democracy and this strong country. But the institutions over the past 10 years, and particularly, I suppose, over the past few months where we've seen these big protests in in Israel over Bibi Netanyahu's proposed changes to the judiciary suddenly seem a bit more fragile now.
4: Yes. And I think, I mean, again, you know, it's probably something that people outside Israel often don't think about, the fact that Israel doesn't have a written constitution. And and that's not, you know, that's not necessarily in and of itself sort of a terrible thing. There are other countries, notably Britain, which don't have written constitutions. You can survive without that. But, the re- you know, one of the reasons that Israel doesn't have one is because there are really difficult questions that it has always had to grapple with, whether it's about its borders, whether it's about its relationship with the Palestinians, whether it's about the role of um, religion, that it has never settled. And so it's had this sort of fudge, I suppose, that it's got around it. And the Supreme Court is kind of part of that. And it's always been, you know, it's always had an important role in Israel, in part because you, um, it's a unicameral system, so you don't have a second um, level to, to sort of provide checks on parliament. And so... Netanyahu with these, these reforms where um, his government wants to introduce an override clause where you would only need a simple majority in parliament to override decisions by the Supreme Court. Those reforms have been incredibly controversial because the Supreme Court is kind of that key institution that provides some kind of political check.
0: These reforms or the proposed reforms, which Netanyahu then backed away from, didn't go down well with President Joe Biden. And it was an unusual moment where he sort of directly didn't rebuke Netanyahu, but he told him to walk away from the plans, which is a pretty direct intervention for an American president to make in Israeli politics unusual.
4: I think it's really interesting because, I mean, as you say, you know, America, Israel's closest ally, very careful about how it would intervene in Israeli politics internal Israeli politics and i think what's really interesting is Israel and America have had an extremely close relationship for the past 75 years on lots of fronts and for lots of reasons and one of the reasons one of the sort of understandings is that America and Israel have sort of shared values you know in in the commitment to de- in a commitment to democracy a liberal democracy. And so I think what's what's interesting that Biden sort of took this stance is whether it reflects kind of more profound concerns about the direction that Israel is going in and how that sits, you know, with America and kind of American values.
0: One of the things that journalists sometimes do is take a crisis that's going on at the moment and just assume that, the relationship between the two countries involved is at its lowest point ever, right? (laughs) Um, Has there been a worse moment than now in US-Israel relations? Or is it in fact accurate to see this as some kind of low point, do you think?
4: I think that the way that it's accurate to see it as a low point is that although this is an immediate crisis and, you know, this relates to what is going on currently, and it relates to the current government in Israel and the current go- government in America. It also reflects some much bigger shifts that are happening in both countries. Um, you know, Israel, you have a fast-growing group of ultra-Orthodox Jews. You have this, this growing religious nationalism, the country sort of seeming to move to the right you have sort of changes, other changes in in um, demographics, in particular sort of growing Arab-Israeli population, which which is going to increase the political polarisation within Israel. You have the ongoing poison of this unresolved question of the Palestinians. Meanwhile, you have America sort of moving in recent years towards a more isolationist position. You have an interesting sort of question in America of the role of religion, which has tied in very much to to support for Israel, because it's not just Jews in America who support Israel, it's also Christians. And, and yet, if, you know, that sort of, if America is becoming more secular, then, then there's a question of how that affects America's relationship with Israel. So I think that the point is that these are very profound shifts that you know, Israel in particular is going to have to figure out how it manages. And so it, it's not that Israel can fix this crisis and then everything's going to be rosy again. It's going to have to think about how it manages the relationship in the context of those very significant changes.
0: James, there's lots to talk about there. I was particularly interested in what Josie had to say about the importance of shared values in the relationship and how that might be changing now. But should we begin with Joe Biden and where he is in all of this? I mean, on US-Israel relations, as on many other foreign policy questions, he's kind of a throwback to an earlier era, right, where it was almost impossible for a Democratic Party politician to be too friendly towards Israel's government, no matter what it was up to
3: yeah I think that's right. I mean he's a very conventional American politician in terms of his you know stalwart commitment to Israel and nothing about this back and forth with Bibi Netanyahu, whom he has known for a very long time and they're They're not huge fans of each other, but nothing about this is going to change that fundamental underlying reality and I also think there's national interest at work here on both sides the security relationship between the US and Israel is is of vital importance to both countries and Joe Biden certainly understands that.
1: Yeah, I was struck that Joe Biden's statement which was supposedly extremely strident was couched in this very strong support. So he said, quote, like many strong support of Israel, I'm very concerned and I'm concerned that they get this straight. So that was part of the back and forth with Netanyahu that was supposedly a, a huge cooling in the relationship, but I think underscores just how strong the relationship has been to date. But Josie said a lot of interesting stuff that I want to dig into more. But one of the things that strikes me is that historically, the, the support of Israel has been based on many factors, but one is... A relatively simple argument that it's a thriving democracy in the Middle East that needs to defend itself. And what this crisis laid bare is that it's not particularly a thriving democracy, and a growing number of people within the democratic left can criticize Israel as an aggressor. So rather than seeing Israel as, as a country that needs to defend itself, they see Netanyahu as being too right-wing and, and aggressive with Palestinians. And so I think that that's worth underscoring just how fundamentally this particular time for Israel undermines what has been a main piece of America's support for Israel in the past. And then I'd also just add that it's much easier to support Israel when its biggest threat is external, but it's harder when its fractures are internal. So it's not that the external threats are gone, but the internal p- politics are really problematic. And so when an American politician says they support Israel, it's unclear w- which version of Israel they support or whether they support the country more broadly or this administration of Netanyahu specifically, it just gets much trickier. So I think that that also is part of why this is a particularly hard time in the relationship.
3: What is new? I think, is that while the relationship between governments remains very close, and I think the dynamics of the partnership remains strong, the peoples are growing apart. And there is a clash of values that is beginning, I think, to rise to the fore that helps explain why Israel has become a partisan issue, which it never really was. There have been moments of partisan conflict over Israel, disagreement about policy. There certainly have been other low moments between the governments. But in March, Gallup reported for the first time since it's been asking the question since 1988, democratic sympathies have swung on net, on balance to the Palestinians. That hasn't happened before versus the Israelis. And I think it reflects an even sharper and potentially more toxic view that's kind of taking hold on the left. You know, the left has been uneasy with Israel since the Six-Day War in 1967, since the beginning of the occupation. The issue of the rights of Palestinians has simmered within the party for a very long time. Republicans tended to be a little less concerned about that. But what we've seen over the course of the last 10 years, and particularly the last few years, I think, is... There's the conventional partisan response that we see with anything as a consequence of polarization. Donald Trump hugged Israel. That made Democrats inherently say there's something wrong here. And I think that's part of
0: it. Yes. So there were all those changes. And also, as you've written, James, the memory of the Holocaust is fading a little bit. Israel is changing a lot. Some of our coverage this week, which I found really interesting, talks about the demographic changes there, in particular the increased numbers and proportion of ultra-Orthodox uh, Israelis, which is really changing the the character of uh, Israeli society and Israeli politics. And also, you know, Charlotte a minute ago talked about Israel being a lone democracy under threat from its neighbors. There's something paradoxical there, which is it's perhaps less under threat from its neighbors than it has been at most points in its history, right? There's still the threat from Iran. But in 2020, Israel made peace with more of its neighbors under the Abraham Accords. And so there's something going on there, right? As Israel gets sort of more secure part of the reason for this very close relationship with america becomes a little weaker okay we'll go back to a eulogy given by an american leader for his israeli counterpart in a moment but first the usual reminder we'd love it if you'd take out a subscription to the economist if you have one already then thank you you make so much of what we do here possible and if you don't have one then you can get a 30-day digital trial by going to economist.com podcast offer you'll also find it in the notes for this episode The soil travelled nearly 6,000 miles in a small paper bag. Edward Kennedy had collected it himself from Arlington Cemetery, taking a few handfuls of dirt from his brother's graves. In Jerusalem a day later, Senator Kennedy knelt by another grave, an open one this time. He spread the earth, transported from the resting places of John F. Kennedy and Robert Kennedy, on the coffin of another man killed by an assassin's bullet. Kennedy was part of a large American delegation at the funeral of Israel's Prime Minister, Yitzhak Rabin, in November 1995. There were two former presidents, George H.W. Bush and Jimmy Carter, three former secretaries of state and 40 members of Congress and the sitting president, Bill Clinton, who gave a eulogy.
2: The American people mourn with you in the loss of your leader, and I mourn with you for he was my partner and friend.
0: The New York Times called it the largest gathering of the high and mighty in the history of the Middle East. Rabin had been fatally shot at a rally in Tel Aviv by an Israeli Jew opposed to the peace
2: process. Welcome to this great occasion of history and hope. Today, we bear witness to an extraordinary act in one of history's defining dramas. Two years
0: earlier, Clinton had stood arms outstretched as Rabin and the Palestine Liberation Organization leader Yasser Arafat shook hands in front of him. it was the first time they'd done so in public. The Oslo Accords and the historic handshake that marked their signing were seen as a turning point in efforts to broker peace between Israelis and Palestinians. And that was
2: still the hope at Rabin's funeral. He knew, as he declared to the world on the White House lawn two years ago, that the time had come, in his words, to begin a new reckoning in the relations between 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 peoples,
5: between parents, tired of war, between children who will will not not know
2: war. Here in Jerusalem, I believe, with perfect faith that he was leading his people to that promised land.
0: Clinton ended the eulogy in Hebrew, turning to look at Rabin's coffin. And shalom, Haver. Shalom, Haver. Goodbye, friend. The phrase was taken up by Israelis mourning their leader in newspaper headlines and on bumper stickers next to the date of Rabin's death. For Clinton, it was more than just a performative platitude for an important ally. He admired Rabin and saw him as a mentor and was devastated by his killing. In the eulogy, Clinton vowed to continue the peace efforts Rabin had given his life for. He spent the rest of his presidency trying to reinvigorate the process, as other American presidents have done since. That now looks like an honorable but naive dream. Peace felt tantalizingly close in 1995. It now feels far away. Clinton has since said that if Rabin had lived, there would have been peace. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict is too complicated and deep-seated for us to know that for sure, but it got a lot harder after Yitzhak Rabin's death. So Charlotte, despite the path the two countries have taken since 1995, Yitzhak Rabin's death, this remains an extremely close relationship. What does that mean in practical terms?
1: Well, Israel is the biggest cumulative recipient of American foreign aid since the Second World War at $160 billion. Dollars, and that's remarkable given Israel's size. And so there's obvious reason why Israel would want to be allies with the United States, but there's also a reason why it's in America's foreign policy interest to work closely with Israel, as James alluded to earlier. So it's not just about curring favor with voters at home, but America benefits, has benefited historically from. Israeli intelligence and cybersecurity efforts and defense, which is something that Netanyahu will explain repeatedly. And that logic has not fundamentally changed, but it's now being weighed against other problems, which, as James referred to earlier, are really problems of values. And so I think that cultural connection also between Israel and the United States is important to emphasize. I mean, when I was in Israel, just as a tourist, I was always struck by the... Way that you have mementos that are clearly targeted to an American audience, but they're sort of military mementos. So you might have American and Israeli flags on a patch that you could buy at a tourist shop, or you might have some kind of t shirt that says America's Got Israel's Back with a fighter plane on it. If you go to any institution, in Israel, you'll see a long list of American donors named on that institution's wall. So clearly there's a big part of the relationship that is both tied to military aid, but also cultural connection. But as that history segment just pointed out, a lot of it has also been about personal relationships, right? And right now you have this situation where Nino is, I think, a relatively charismatic guy and a good orator, but you can't really paper over Chaos with charisma. And James, when you were in Jerusalem, what was your sense of the leaders at the time and how they interacted with their counterparts in America? What were the personalities that you encountered?
3: Charlotte, I arrived in Jerusalem as, as the new bureau chief on September of 2001, a week before the attacks of 9 11. And like everybody else, with absolutely no idea what was coming. And the conflict there. Was supercharged by that attack. That was the Second Intifada had begun, but it became far, far more violent. And Ariel Sharon was then the prime minister of Israel. And I have come to think of him as the most uh, formidable politician I've ever covered, for better or for worse. He's a man who I, I think basically put the whole state on his shoulders and devised a strategy for what he thought would secure its future and pursued it utterly, ruthlessly, and, and very effectively. But in the aftermath of 9-11, Ariel Sharon was very worried about George W. Bush and whether he was going soft and whether he was going to demand security concessions from Israel. And he actually gave a speech Three weeks after 9-11, in which he warned that George Bush risked appeasing the Arabs, as he put it, the same way that European nations appeased Hitler before World War II. And it was an astonishing accusation from an sitting Israeli prime minister against an American president while America was still reeling from 9-11. And there was just a huge eruption, (laughs) huge backlash, huge uproar. Like everybody else, I was trying to get an interview with Ariel Sharon, who was very hard to reach. And to my astonishment, two days later, I got a phone call from Ariel Sharon, wanting to talk about the speech. And to my even greater astonishment, he went on to express regret for what he had said five times in under five minutes. I was timing him. And he was very, it's just over and over again. Oh, I didn't mean it. You know, my metaphor was taken wrongly. He, he did say, he did say, I didn't mention Chamberlain. He said, "You know, it wasn't. I didn't go that far." And to me, in retrospect, it was also classic Sharon. Because part of me was thinking, "Here's this fierce warrior," you know. And and we won't rehearse all the history of Sharon, but he had fought in every one of Israel's wars, and very, very controversially, was known as the bulldozer. And here he was, just falling all over himself to apologize. and but it's because he was, I think, so strong. Words didn't really mean anything. It was what he was trying to accomplish. and he was trying to repair that relationship in a hurry. and And he did. And we all know that George W. Bush, in fact, was a great friend of Israel. Israel very much approved of the way to some of our sorrow. Uh, George Bush tried to pursue what he saw as America's interests in the Middle East, including by invading Iraq. So
0: Errol Sharon's fears were not um, warranted, as it turned out. Yeah, thinking back to the era of Sharon and Rabin before him on this 75th anniversary. I mean, for all that period, the talk was framing this in terms of the two-state solution, how it would be brought about. I mean, that is still america's official position right but at this point that feels like just a kind of formality rather than a reflection of something that might actually be achievable and also our coverage this week suggests that increasing numbers of palestinians are moving on from the idea of a two-state solution as well okay we'll be back in a moment to consider what influence american jews have now over israeli politics Anshul Pfeffer is The Economist's Israel correspondent. We talked earlier this week and began by discussing how the relationship between Jews in America and in Israel
5: has changed over the past 75 years. So we're talking about communities which in general are are quite pro-Israel. Certainly the mainstream of the big diaspora communities, in this case the biggest of them all in the United States, are broadly pro-Israel. The leadership of the communities Spends a lot of time also also visiting Israel and doing various projects together with Israeli organizations, whether it's philanthropy, lobbying, and any type of of cooperation. It's it's a major part of I think what the main Jewish organizations do in the diaspora. And there's been a shift over the years, partly because Israel is more prosperous and there's less of a less of the need for the fundraising the relationship has become, some would say, more tilted towards Israel with Israel, saying we, we, we're we less in need of this, diaspora for money, but the connection is still a very important connection, whether it's political lobbying and everything to do with maintaining high levels of American support for Israel and just the fact that we're talking about relatively a small nation there are only 15 million or so Jews around the world and roughly about 40 percent of those live in Israel another 40 percent live in the United States so we're talking about the big the two big Jewish communities which have a level of relationship, but, it, but it's, it's being tested. It's certainly being tested in recent months with the new Netanyahu government being much more far-right and much more religious than in the past. And American Jews tend to be more liberal and their level of religiosity tends towards the less orthodox. So this is creating, uh, I think, a lot of tension to that relationship right now.
0: And that difference between the makeup of the current Netanyahu-led government and the sort of center of gravity of uh, Jews in America politically is really interesting. I wonder, though, to what extent, it, even if at all, it adds a some kind of constraint on the action of an Israeli prime minister or, or an Israeli government. I mean, does Netanyahu have to be mindful of what lots of Jews in the U.S. think or, or their opinions, or can he afford to essentially ignore them entirely?
5: So when we talk about Netanyahu, we're talking about somebody who basically owes his political career to American Jews. He began his public he began public life as first as a deputy ambassador in Washington. We're talking back in the 1980s, and then uh, as the ambassador uh, at the UN. So at the center of of, of Jewish organizational power in, in in the U.S. and very much. Uh, his his earliest backers and, and, and funders for, for Netanyahu's political campaigns were American Jews, and this was always the place where he showed off his uh, his media talents. On you know, back in the eighties, when it was mainly on the television networks, Netanyahu was the first real Israeli star. To to speak in English and to do it in a in a way that American Jews felt that he was almost one of them, and Netanyahu did spend some of his formative years both high school and then afterwards at MIT uh, in the US. So this was in his in Netanyahu's early career very much his starting point and one of his advantages over other Israeli. Uh, politicians that he sort of had America. He knew America. He had this American support. But in more recent years, Netanyahu is being increasingly seen by American Jews as the kind of, of Israel they don't like. They want to believe in an Israel. And it's an illusion, obviously, to think of it, that Israel is it can be similar to the U.S., but they want to feel that there is this affinity in values and, and culture and so on between between them and their Jewish brothers and sisters in Israel and Netanyahu with you know, his increasing tilt towards the right and his alliances his intransigence on on the Palestinian issue all these things have been have basically been sticking a finger in the eye of American Jews
0: and the center of gravity among American Jews was once on the center left But some American Jews are looking to the Abraham Accords in particular, which normalised relations between Israel and the UAE and Bahrain and were brokered by the Trump administration, and perhaps reconsidering their traditional political affiliation or the political affiliations of their parents. So how big a change is there going on among American Jews now?
5: Well, I think what we're seeing is both amongst the American Jewish community, a parallel to what's happening in Israel in the fact that there are it's clearer and clearer that there are different groups with very different political and religious and ideological leanings. So we know, based on decades of elections and surveys, that about 70 percent of American Jews vote Democrat. But the 30% who do vote for the Republicans, and they're a minority, but we're talking here about a significant group, there are Netanyahu's supporters here. They're the supporters of Israel's current far-right government. They're, in many ways, they are closer to Israelis or to the kind of Israelis who are now in government, the religious right, than they are to some of their American Jewish neighbors and, and friends. And what I think what we're seeing here increasingly is two different camps, not necessarily just along the lines of Israel and the U.S., but a Jewish right wing, some would call it fundamentalist camp, which is perhaps larger in Israel, but also has a very significant presence here in the U.S. And certainly during the Trump years, they felt they felt that they were. Um, they almost felt in power, and you talked uh, at the time to quite a few, especially ultra-Orthodox American Jews who didn't feel as, uh, so much at home in the American establishment or maybe didn't feel that American at all. In the Trump years, they felt that this was, a, this was an administration that was much closer to them in the same way that the majority of American Jews felt estranged uh, in the Trump years from the administration.
0: James, it's kind of fascinating that the Trump administration, though it was accused by some political opponents of anti-Semitism at times, seems to have been, as Angel said there, kind of beloved by ultra-Orthodox Jews in America.
3: Yeah. In addition to getting the Abraham Accords done, he moved the American embassy to Jerusalem, which was seen as hugely symbolically important.
1: James, you referred earlier to the shift in public opinion as reflected in this Gallup poll from March. And I was looking at some of the underlying differences that were reflected in that poll. And it's really younger Americans that have made the shift. So the older generation is still very strongly in support of Israelis versus Palestinians. And it's millennials where you see that support more evenly split. And that's something that may become more exaggerated over time. So religiosity, whether you're going to a church or a synagogue, is highly correlated with being sympathetic to Israelis. And so as you have this long-term drop in support, that May well be linked, as it has been in the past, to lessening support for Israelis. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting in the polling is just how strong Republican support for Israelis remains. So nearly eight in 10 Republicans sympathize more with Israelis than with Palestinians. The numbers for Democrats are 49% for Palestinians versus 38% for Israelis. And so you see that in the activities of Republican politicians. You have Ron DeSantis going to Israel this month meeting with Netanyahu is very much a prerequisite, it seems, for anyone who might have broader political aspirations, particularly now within the Republican Party. Kevin McCarthy is going to Israel as well. So Democrats still go. So Hakeem Jeffries was there this month, leading Democrat in the House. But I nonetheless was struck by the strength of Republican statements in support of Netanyahu after Biden was mildly critical of Netanyahu. Kevin McCarthy came out with this statement about how Netanyahu is an Israeli patriot, a statesman and, and a great friend of the United States, and that his support for Israel's vibrant democracy was unwavering. So I, I think you do see this playing out in the way that different parts of the American uh, political class relate to and talk about Israel.
0: James, that incredibly staunch support on the Republican side for Israel, how much is that to do with polarization that we've talked about, right? So Biden criticizes Netanyahu, the thing to do for Republican politicians is to leap to his defense. And how much is it to do with the importance of evangelical churches in the Republican coalition? What do you think explains the current Republican position?
3: Look, what came first was the evangelical support. And we saw that really over the course of the last 20 years grow and grow, and uh, particularly. And then came Donald Trump, John. So I guess that, it, to answer your question, both things are true. And that's, that's the sequence. And I think Trump's embrace was partly related to that you know, strong evangelical support that emerged um, really, particularly over the course of this century, for, for the state of Israel. I just think we can't emphasize enough the generational aspect here and the role of time, you know, and change in the Middle East and shifting the, the politics. I mean, you know, memories of the Holocaust are fading and those were utterly central to the initial strong support for the idea of a Jewish homeland in Israel in the U.S. And I think for several generations, a sense of great sympathy. And then on the left, that was combined, you know, particularly in the first 25 years or so of the state of with the, this was a socialist democracy in the Middle East and a poor and struggling one. And so young Americans today and young American Jews too look at Israel and they see a thriving capitalist state. And they don't recognize there the frightened, vulnerable, impoverished refugee state that still lives in the memory, I think, of some Americans.
0: So James, as you say, there've been some changes in American, American public opinion. But I'm mainly struck by our coverage this week, which is focused on Israel, as it should rightly be about just the extent of the changes in Israeli societies, even since the era of Rabin and, and Ariel Sharon, which you covered in particular, the demographic changes, right? There's a note about Israel in the Middle East and Africa pages this week, which Charlotte already mentioned, which has some great numbers on the fertility rate in Israel. So overall in Israel, the fertility rate, the number of children a woman is expected to have in her lifetime is 2.9, which makes it the highest in the OECD. But that average figure masks a huge variation in some of the cities that, that are populated by The ultra-Orthodox Jews, the average woman has seven children uh, and in secular places like Tel Aviv, it's less than two. And so you have this very profound shift in demography in Israel and with that demographic shift, a shift in values, which I think is just going to make it really hard to keep this relationship as strong as it has been over the next 75 years. Okay, James, you know what's coming up. It's quiz time. As we mentioned earlier, Joe Biden announced that he's running for re election this week. The video launching his campaign had the slogan, Let's finish the job. I'm going to give you a few more slogans used during campaigns of presidents running for a second term, and I want you to name the candidate they apply to. Okay, first one a safer world and a more hopeful America. Hmm. That's terrible. It's bad. I
1: mean, it's a real mouthful. it could be George W. Bush, but I don't think it was.
0: These
3: are incumbent presidents running again? Yes.
1: I'll say, I'll say GW, but I'm not sure that that's right.
3: I would agree with that, but yes.
0: You can definitely agree with it because it's right. It was George W. Bush in 2004. I think the safety thing was an important part of that candidacy. So, um, Charlotte, you take the points there. Question two. This is a doozy. Peace and prosperity. Reagan? I'd go further back. Maybe uh, Eisenhower? It was Dwight Eisenhower in Mm,
1: 1956. That's
0: one one. Very good. The third one. Okay. He's making us proud again. That could be Reagan.
1: Yeah, that sounds Reagan-y. It sounds like something that Nancy Reagan came up with over breakfast, and then that was it.
0: It's kind of an apology slogan, he's making us proud again. And that was because it was Gerald Ford in 1976, Uh, I suppose, referring Uh, to Nixon not having made Americans all that proud in the recent past. Okay, final one, and surely the best. In your guts, you know he's nuts.
1: (laughs) (laughs)
3: Um, I know this one. Uh, You do know this one?
1: one? Uh, I don't know this one, but... So tell us, who is it?
0: Wait, it's an incumbent? Go ahead. Yeah, it was an incumbent about his opponent. So it's a bit of a cheat. Oh, oh, yeah. Um, It's a reference to Goldwater. It is. It was LBJ in 1964, and it was a riposte to Barry Goldwater's slogan, which was, in your heart, you know he's right.
1: I'm going to give some random trivia, which is that... um, Speaking of Republican support for Israel, which is that Orrin Hatch wore a mezuzah around his neck. The Republican senator, a Mormon Republican senator, wore a mezuzah around his neck for four decades. And he also wrote a Hanukkah song.
0: That is really good trivia. James, do you have any trivia you want to add? No, I can't. I can't remotely compete with that.
3: And you I can't think top we, that. As okay. a result, Charlotte is the victor again this week. Charlotte's the victor. She's
0: racking up the points, making
3: up the rules as she goes along. I
1: mean, you guys are both dramatically rewriting the rules. James got (laughs) at least three questions right. So if Idris was here, he definitely would not let me get away with anything remotely resembling a victory. So we can move on. I gracefully concede. And it's been nice speaking with you both.
0: Well, hopefully someone will write in and let us know the results of that one. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, James. Thank you. Thank you. Nice seeing you guys. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble and Stevie Hertz. Nicola Rofast is our sound engineer. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. That means more people can find Checks and Balance and listen to it. You can now explore our whole archive, if you'd like to do that, at economist.com slash ChecksPod. And you can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.